My name's Elijah, and welcome to the Roots Hospitality Podcast. Yes, yes. Welcome to another Chef's PSA and Roots Hospitality Takeover. Yeah, so how, how did you find Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadera? Because I, I'm so close to finishing this and so far it's been a really good read. And I also just watched uh, their episode on Six Days or Seven Days Out on Netflix where they actually chose 11 Madison Park yep. and they followed them seven days, which is also really sick. But uh, yeah, reading the book, it's like, reminds me of that... Uh, Fuck, what's the book? Lessons in Service with Thomas Keller, where it's like Will Gadera's really, in his OCD ways, thought about all these little details and why they're so important. And I'm just like, it's just fucking mind-boggling. I'm loving it. But I, I don't know. You've you finished it now. What are, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I honestly would say it's maybe one of the top five books in hospitality and developing a service culture or even, even a workplace environment culture. And... I, I think it's brilliant. I probably agree with him like on 99% of the things that he said in there. There's one thing I don't agree with him on. Um, but everything else, I was like, he's spot on. And a lot of the things that he talks about, you know, when I wrote my Culinary Leadership Fundamentals book, the, the most important chapter to me in that is culture. A big part of what I do with Chef's PSA is to really develop kitchen culture. Yeah. And so everything that he was talking about just really resonated with me. It was so well written. The stories are great. Um, and having, you know, I have friends that have gone through 11 Madison park and hearing the stories and then, you know, hearing, you know, uh, will speak about it. It was just a fantastic book. Highly recommend it to anyone that's in the, uh, in, in the industry or in hospitality, you, you should, uh, you should get it right yeah, away. Yeah, I fucking know. What's good about it as well is that he has a, a sense of humbleness that is very endearing mm -hmm. and is very like, it, it, because he has such a fun attitude. I mean, he talks about wanting to work at Shake Shack for fuck's sake, you know, like, so clearly he's got someone who really loves to work, but also has that fun and enthusiastic, enthusiastic attitude. And so him taking that to such a high level was very refreshing in a sense, you know, it's not just this serious, mm -hmm. serious sense of bravado and, and refinement and, you know, do this and do that. And if it's not that fuck off, it's like, you can still do an excellent job and it's well, still run one of the best restaurants in the world and have fun with it. So that's, it was nice reading that and reading into the mind of that as well. So dude, it was fucking excellent. I, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that it's out, but I'm kind of curious to see where things are going now because obviously I think, did he sell his part of the company? Is that what's happened? Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, he gets into it. Uh, I know you haven't finished the book, but he does speak on that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I believe I don't have intimate knowledge other than what I've read in the book and in the in the in the gossip tabloids here in the U.S. Um, but from what I understand, he's yeah. out. Okay, okay, because that's going to be that's going to be interesting. What's really interesting, and you touched on this, is that he dispels the myth that you have to come from a certain pedigree to be in the best restaurant in the world. Clearly, not the case. He was coming from uh, you know kind of their middle of the road restaurant with uh, with the Danny Myers Group and didn't have that, you know, world's 50 best pedigree and went in and created with, uh, you know, Chef Daniel, uh, the number one restaurant in the yeah. world. 
Now, if that's not if that's not reframing the way we think about who should be uh, in the conversation, and and if they don't have the cooking chops, they can't go into that restaurant. I don't know what yeah. it is. So, really interesting to see that. Yeah, uh, I also found it. I also found it really funny. At one point in the book, he talks about the financial recession, and he talks about how at one point yep. the Shake Shack was actually funding Eleven Madison Park to just keep going. And I was like, "Fuck, man! What a yep. that's so good! Like, I love that you can take." in seemingly the best restaurant in the world and just a fast food joint is doing so much better that has to kind of fund that to keep its dreams alive. And I'm like, man, it just really shows you the reality sometimes. Like, uh, I thought it was sick. Um, but even then, on, on the other side of books as well, the I mean, I just got the recent Noma 2.0 book, which have you, do, do you have any of the uh, Noma books by any chance? Yeah, I have... Uh... I have, uh, I think I have all the books of Noma that they've written, um, except for that one that you just said, the Noma, Noma 2.0. It only just yeah. came out, maybe. Like I, I uh, did you uh, make a reindeer dick salad? <laughs> 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 yeah, I, uh, they, they had diagrams of how to eat it. It was just uh, to eat it like this. You know, to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. My mouth looking like the uh, scars of the Joker afterwards, you know, just trying to fit it all in. <laughs> that wasn't a reindeer, that was a moose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah, just, uh, you know, getting getting the tissues and just wiping some stuff off at the side there. Yeah, it's crazy. It was fucking wild. Oh, I love that, man. It's, I, I, I don't know why that blew up more than it needed to over social media. It was just the funniest shit to just see all the memes grating about that. <laughs> well, it was, it was, uh, clearly, clearly, I, you know, I don't know Renee. I, I've never met him and I, I, I only know a couple of people that have worked at Noma. So Noma's not in my sphere of influence, but from what I could see from afar, he's a marketing genius. And clearly that was intentional to have that be the recipe that he puts out first is like the most brilliant marketing move you've ever seen. It's so good, right? It's so good. Uh, but yeah, man, honestly, these books keep getting fucking better and better. Right. Eh? Like, you know, just it reminds mm-hmm. me of Peter Gilmore's books. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen or read through mm-hmm. any of those, but like just world yep. class looking at them are like, whoa, fucking hell. Like mm-hmm. just beautiful. Clearly, and, and, and it's great to to pick up books, especially fine dining books, where the techniques are still out of your caliber. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's just a, a different than all the other cookbooks out there that are just doing the same copy and paste shit. You know, where it's like these books are like, okay, cool. Yep. I can actually learn some shit here. And, and that's really nice, you know, and it's like really out of your depth. Also, shit, you probably will never do in your career, but it's still nice to know that right. they exist in a caliber that if you wanted to push yourself, you can, which is nice. But yep. fuck, these, these books are beautiful, man. I'm curious what this uh, the 3.0 is going to be, to be honest with you, how this is going to change. Because obviously mm-hmm. now they've just announced they've closed, which is crazy this is just maybe a month or two ago so they're going to turn into like an r&d space uh kind of loosely they didn't really define it but we know they're going to japan uh and, and doing that for a little mm-hmm. bit in, in kyoto so it's it's going to be very interesting to to follow that and see where they're going to go with all this mm-hmm. but um you know i i don't know a lot about the the closing of noma and i'll tell you i've intentionally stayed away from the conversation around Noma. 
I, I haven't wanted to talk about it. I get my DMs blown up. What do you think about Noma? I get tagged in posts all the time about Noma, um, people trashing it. Um, and I've, I've stayed out of the conversation. I, I, I really, I haven't even read any of the articles. And, and trust me, I've been sent a lot of them. And I'll tell you why. So finally, like I addressed it once and uh, I'll, I'll address it again and I'll tell you why I don't want to talk about it. So Noma is a hot subject um, for good and bad reasons. Right. Some people love it. Like you were saying, they're, they're pushing uh, creativity to a, a point of, uh, you know, just it's it's exploring things that we didn't even think were possible. They're the trendsetters. But there's also the conversation around the stages and the labor and, you know, they're exploiting people, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I don't even want to give it intention is I'll tell you this is because there's so much energy around it and it's intense passion either you hate them or you love them and they are so divisive and my thing is like noma represents like 0.01 percent of all the restaurants in the world 0.01 not only that but most likely you'll never know anyone that works at noma and, and for most people they'll never meet anyone that's even worked at noma or eaten at noma it is it is 0.01% of the restaurants in the world. And it's like 1% of the fine dining restaurants in the world. It's not a true representation of what the industry is. It's not a true representation of what fine dining is. And what people are doing is they're using Noma to, to paint the rest of the industry. And it's, it's like, they, they, I don't know anyone. I, I know absolutely zero. And I know a lot of chefs. I know a lot of chefs that have three Michelin star restaurants and chefs that have been on the world's 50 best. And I don't know one person that has copied Noma's business model, period. I don't know one person that has done that. So when people get so passionate about it, I just think to myself, Renee's living in your head rent free. That's exactly what he wants. <laughs> like the conversation is about him. I, I truly think he's a marketing genius. And I think uh, David Susio touched on this on one of his podcasts. He's a marketing genius. He knows how to get people to talk about him. I see his tactics. They're Machiavellian in nature. I see what he's doing. Um, he is like uh, Edward Bernays' propagandist right out of right out of the the World War era. You know what I mean? Yeah. He yeah, is yeah. A, a master at it to keep his to keep his name in everyone's mouth, and he's serving people that you'll never meet, and the people that are working in his restaurant you'll never even know who they are. But everyone thinks that the rest of the industry is like that, and it's not. And uh, yeah, so. I, I don't really think about it because I've, I've said, you know, he's, he doesn't represent what I do. He doesn't represent even what some of the best chefs in the world do. He is a unicorn in a field all out on his own on an island that no one will ever go to and discover. He's an anomaly within the anomalies. So <laughs> that's, that's all the attention I'll, I'll give uh, that conversation. And you know what? I think that is probably the, the biggest problem of this whole thing. It's not even that it's closing it's just what everybody else is saying around the fact that it's closing and the assumptions they're making about that so i think you make a very valid point there that that of course it is you know a very very small part of the world when it comes to the of course when it comes to our chefs we're all very familiar and i'm sure they've influenced us in in some way shape or form creatively right not necessarily working mm -hmm. culture or their model like you like you say but it's crazy to see and I think that's what keeps dividing people is the articles that are coming out about it. I just read one yesterday where it's like, uh, Noma announces closure. Does that mean fine dining's dead? It's like, what an assumption to make. Like, 
one restaurant closes, yep. just it only just was announced. The you know it just got three hats. Like you know, just of course yep. it's considered the best restaurant in the world by the same people that are also trashing it now, mind you, which is just so backwards. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mate, just chill out. Like objectively, it's 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 crazy, man. Like yeah, it's it's funny because I, you're right. Although you could have an opinion on either way, and they can be both founded and have a, a, a great reason, especially for chefs, right? And I feel like chefs are probably the people that should really kind of have the only credible view because we actually understand and have experience with the industry, whereas other people are looking at it from the outside in and making assumptions, um, you know, which is basically most media that isn't to do with uh, that aren't mm-hmm. chefs, but... Uh, letting that sit and and muddle out and then you can kind of talk about it after when everyone's like oh yeah whatever we're on we're on to the new person that we want to talk shit about and then the chefs can actually get together and go yeah. oh yeah well you know these are my thoughts anyway we can quietly like talk about it between ourselves and no one gives a fuck because they're already moved on so i think that's a very very valid point but i still i i, I really do hope that and i know that they will will continue to just keep growing and doing their r&d because it's nice to have chefs out there and i guess probably them just doing their r&d shit without a restaurant will probably be where they're most comfortable mm-hmm. you know um and it's good that they can still push the boundaries in that sense so hopefully i just for, for the chefs and the culinary world's sake if they just don't want to do a restaurant anymore that at least that they can still continue to push the boundaries in that area because innovation and mm-hmm. is always where you're going to grow so i guess if that's it i still hope they and i'm sure they will will just keep pushing the boundaries of culinary expectations mm-hmm. I'll tell you that if uh, if you wanted to watch a master class in marketing for a chef watch Rene Redzepi mm. he is he is probably the best chef marketer outside of Gordon Ramsay <laughs> outside of Gordon Ramsay and you remember when Gordon Ramsay came out he did the boiling point documentary and he was angry and and then he built a whole career off that but if you if you look at what Rene's done He's, he's done basically the exact same thing in his own way. And I'm not discounting his culinary ability. So don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm just talking about from a marketing standpoint, putting things in books like reindeer penis salad or trash can. I don't remember. It was like trash can cook moss or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Like I remember the word like trash was in trash cooking or something like that. When you, when you do those things or you say we're going to forage or um, he, he did the documentary. Was it uh ants on a shrimp i think is what he did yeah the yeah, documentary yeah. a while back that he yeah. did ants on a shrimp and i remember i saw a picture went uh, all over the internet back then it was like whale sperm emulsion like he knows what he's doing like <laughs> he, he figured like if anyone if anyone doesn't think that uh that he's not a marketing genius like hey look i'm serving ants on shrimp and everyone's gonna be like what and then it's like oh we got all this other stuff yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we do all these other things but but this is the, uh, the the audacious thing that's going to get you to look at what I'm doing, and then you'll see all the other cool things that are. It's, he is a genius when it comes to marketing. If you watch some of his old documentaries, the way he's intense and he's yelling at people, it's like he knows the cameras are there. I don't know if he's really that intense, but I'll tell you a story. I remember once I was interviewing for a, a, a TV show, and uh, I was auditioning, and they I was on a short list to get my own show. I have no idea what show it was. I think it might have been like a, like a somebody feed Phil or one of these these shows where they follow you around. And they told me that after Anthony Bourdain had passed away that there was a void in the culinary world. Like culinary TV struggled, right? 
they were looking for to build the next superstar. And so I was on the short list and I remember I was interviewing with the casting producer and I didn't know what to say. So I was like, oh shit, I dressed up. I had a scotch and I was smoking a cigar and, and they're asking me, do you get mad? And I was like, uh, yes, but sometimes I'm nice. And I was like, ah, I'm like, what do you want? Are we going into the nice era? <laughs> Are we going into the me? angry chef era? Yeah. I could do both. I said, sometimes I'm nice, sometimes I'm mean. Uh, I ended up not getting the, the show. I, I don't know what show it was, uh, but it was nice to be on the short list. And uh, the reason I was on the short list, because I asked them, I was like, why me? They said, well, because we look at all the other uh, chefs that we follow on social media, and you're the only one that is doing stupid shit different, like smoking cigars and talking shit and posting memes and being funny. It's not just about the food. I was like, cool. So that's what got me noticed, is that I had there was more to the personality than just the plate. Sure. Um, so that would be my marketing advice for, for up and coming chefs. But the reason I, I bring that up is because, uh, you know, when the camera's on and, and uh, you know, Gordon Ramsay or Renee in this case, and they're getting upset, it's like they know the camera's on like people like you understand that a lot of this is marketing. You understand that the Noma 3.0, the closing was just to bring attention to what they're doing next. Yeah, like it's, yeah. He's gonna. He's going. He's going to say something audacious like, "Here's here's the the marketing plan. What if the most fine dining of fine dining chefs says fine dining is dead? Well, everyone's gonna talk about that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's he's a clever marketer, and if and if chefs are paying attention, like, if you want a master class in marketing, watch Renee. He is he is the best marketer right now. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It it, it reminds me of this. Uh little clip I saw of Elon Musk who was showcasing his new car that, I don't know, is that, you know, that fucking, that crazy ass uh, solar car or whatever it was. and uh, The Cybertruck. The Cybertruck. Did you see this? I think you might know what I'm talking about. Where mm-hmm. he was like, you know, it's got all these features. It's excellent. I can't wait for it. It's even got like bulletproof windows, whatever it is. And he's got a rock and he, and he throws it at the, the window to demonstrate how good quality these windows are. And the window just breaks in front of everybody. And, uh, and then he turns yep. to the people on the front and he's like, we'll get that fixed before the cars are out. That's okay. We'll, 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 we'll do that. Like, it's one of those things where he knew it was going to fail, but it would bring more attention to his Cybertruck than it showcasing the Cybertruck. So it's that same thing. It's, a, it's very interesting. I, I love yes. it. I actually find it fucking hilarious. Yeah, the next day, everyone was posting videos of him. Yeah throwing a, a rock at the window, breaking the window, saying he's an idiot. And it's like, eh, I don't think he's the idiot. Yeah, you're all talking about <laughs> I, I don't think he. <laughs> I don't think he was the idiot here. Yeah. Uh, anyway. It was very, very good. But even just to take it on to that, uh, this thing that went viral, I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Dan Barber's marshmallow fluff? Or his oat, oh, sorry, his oat fluff? Oat milk fluff? Oh, no. Okay, maybe it didn't go as viral. Maybe, maybe it didn't go as viral as I thought, but... Uh, Dan Barber, known for his his kind of his own little innovations in a sense, uh, made this like oat milk and then reduced it down to a caramel and then whipped that milk uh-huh. into like a fluff. So it was like a marshmallow fluff. And seriously, I was looking at all the comments and all the people were like, you know, how did you do it? Oh, this can't be possible. Is it homemade milk or did you buy the milk? And I watched the video and I, I made like five liters of like oat milk in my house and just started reducing it. And it just fucking turned to porridge after like five hours. And I was like, man, I wonder if this is just a, just a trick. You know, is this real or is he just doing this to fuck yeah. with people? And I was like, oh, it was so crazy. But anyway, we'll, we'll go. We got to close that up. Um, but with that said, I think the interesting one of the articles to bring this around to it uh, about Noma closing. Someone even said that 
is the catalyst of uh, the menu movie coming out as to why like Gnome is closed or was the menu painting a portrait for the potential of Gnome's closure. So and I found that very interesting. And now you've watched the menu, we can actually talk about it. There will be spoilers, but uh, let's get rolling. I'm curious, what were the uh, parts you watched where you're like, oh shit, they got that so accurate, I can feel it in my bones. Because that was probably about every 10 minutes in that movie. Uh, watching them cook, I thought was really fantastic. Um, seeing how they were organized in the kitchen, seeing how they moved. It was very realistic to a high level functioning kitchen. Like that was that was pretty accurate. Um, I did like the food that they were putting up. And a lot of it was bullshit food. Like you looked at it as like, yeah, but like that's that's bullshit food. Like you you could see through it. It's like, like uh, of course this is a whatever whatever. Um, it was the food scenes and the kitchen scenes were really great. I thought um, I, I thought they did a really good job. at clearly they're they're mimicking Noma or they're and, and other high end restaurants. Um, so I, I thought the whole thing was really well done. Now. I thought the story was just kind of flat. I don't know if it was a horror movie. Like if I was just looking at it from a Hollywood standpoint, I, I it was entertaining. It wasn't a great movie. It was just good. I if I wasn't a chef, I probably would have thought, meh, it was okay. But the fact that I am a chef, it's like, okay, it was good. I enjoyed it. Did you uh, did you cringe at the scene where the lady picked up the Paco jet and threw it threw it at the other woman? You're like, no, not the fucking Paco jet. Nope. No. God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a, a ninja creamy, so yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I felt so bad because I, I was more concerned at the quality of the packer jet than the fact that it was being thrown at somebody. Uh, that, that's how bad of a yeah. chef, you know. You know the uh, the scene, the sous chef scene. So, if people haven't seen the movie, uh, spoiler: the sous chef scene. I don't remember what the sous chef name is, but he goes out there and yeah. you know does what he does, and uh, someone's mess. I can't remember what it was. Um, that was like, oh shit, that was, th- this movie is like, okay, yeah, there's, there's no hope for it at this point. Like we know where this is going. Like we know exactly. Okay. It's that kind of movie. Like there's no hope that this is all going to wrap up with a nice bow at the end. And oh, it was all part of the show. Like, oh no, <laughs> <It's> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is that kind of movie. No, but I really loved it because it, it, in, in reality, it really touched on so many different points all in the one thing. Like clearly they had to string so many different uh touchy subjects in the one film and somehow string them along because they were tackling so much shit both from a customer facing and a like a restaurant facing all these little ideas in, in unison which which is why i was like every five or ten minutes you're like whoa this is crazy like they're really they're not just going for one storyline it's like how can we tackle every little thing that we know about what it's like to work in a restaurant which they got dominic crane to be mm-hmm. the consultant for the the food actually and oh, yeah yeah which was pretty sick that's very very cool um and i love the nods that they did to different chefs as well during the movie when you'd look at the mm-hmm. dishes and you go oh that's interesting like uh, i remember their broken emulsion was like a, a little testament to the upside drop the lemon tart that massimo batura did or at the end of the painting on the floor was the whole grand hatchets style you know like it was very yeah. i love those little mm-hmm. nods you know it's it was very cool yeah, it was, it was a good movie. I, I if, if you're in the industry, I, you should watch it. Now, um, there's a lot of the discussion with Renee and and that movie coming out is is Fine Dining Dead, and I'll tell you that as long as there's different types of people, there's probably going to be different types of dining experiences. Yeah, like as long as there's diversity in people, there's going to be diversity in dining, and so I I think Fine Dining's been dead for like 
at least five times in my career. That's still here. Like El Bully closed, Fine Dining's dead. You know, the recession hit, Fine Dining's dead. It's still here. It, it just evolves into a new form of fine dining. You know, the way that uh, when the French Laundry came out, it was revolutionary from all the other fine dining restaurants. And when, uh, you know, El Bully came or Noma, like they're always reinventing fine dining. Fine dining will still be around because people still are going to want to be creative. They're still going to want to express themselves. They're still going to want to see what the limits of their own and their team's potential is. And so as long as people are pushing themselves, there's someone's going to push themselves in dining. And I'll tell you what, um, if I, I think like a contrarian at times, and if I was, I'm not a chef anymore, but if I was still a chef right now and everyone was saying fine dining was dead, I might think that it's a good time to go into fine dining because you know, it's, it's blue ocean, right? Everyone's, everyone's out there making uh, you know, this type of cuisine, it's like, oh, if I could do this, the competition just got super thin. And people are still going to want that type of experience. So um, I, I, tend to, um, I tend to think that fine dining is not dead. Um, I think what people call fine dining may evolve, but it's, it's not dead. I don't think fine dining will ever be dead. I think as long as, as, long as people enjoy eating, they're going to want to enjoy the dining experience. And there's going to be people that, that get bored of saying, okay, this is just a room with a table and food. How can I create this into something fun? And I think as long as there's creative people out there, fine dining will evolve into something else. But to say it's dead is, uh, it's, uh, you're, you're selling your, your thinking short if you think that it's over. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing to touch on because I think evolving exactly is what fine dining is going to do. I thought about this in the past week or two and I've started to notice restaurants that take that fine dining idea and then give it a bit of fun. Give it the Will Gadera touch, as, as you might say, mm-hmm. where it'll become fun dining, where the food is beautiful, the plates are beautiful, the atmosphere is beautiful, but the hospitality is, is friendly, it's welcoming. It's like being uh, arriving at someone's home, so to speak, you know, and that's, that's, I think, where it's going to go next, where the food can still have the same level of intricate detail and technique and, and flavor, but now you've mm. got the, the story there. You've got the people who are serving you, sharing the story and having a laugh with you, connecting with you and how you might connect with that food. And then it be, kind of becomes like a mm-hmm. really fun experience for everybody. So I think you make a super, super valid point. And I got to agree with you there. I think that might, might be where it goes to next because then it becomes more approachable. So, so- I know you interviewed um, the, the chef de cuisine at Noma, and I don't, did you eat at Noma when you were over there? Dude, I tried to get just even one seat because they even have a table of just one seat, and fuck, uh-huh. it was it was just it was booked. It was so fully booked, and I'm like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be that person that's like, you know, hey Kenneth, you know, uh, any chance you can get me a seat? Like, I'm not gonna be that that piece of shit, right? That all those food bloggers do. Like, yeah. oh, you know, I'm doing you a favor. Can you do me a favor? I'm like, no, that's just the nature of fucking... I should have got my shit together months ago, mm-hmm. you know? But I only decided to go to Copenhagen while I was already traveling. So I was like... I was like... Because I was just picking places as I went. So I didn't even know I was going to get there, but... So, so do you know how many courses Noma does for, for dinner by any chance? Yes, yeah, like between 15 and 20. Okay, so one of the big arguments and criticisms that Noma had was that they had so much staff that they didn't pay. Right. And if you're doing 15 and 20 courses, could you not do just making this number up? Could you not do five courses just as excellent and pay the people? You, you know what I mean? Like, I honestly think about that. It's like, well, you, you could still, 
you could still be the best restaurant in the world with five courses. Could you not? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, could you not? Could you not challenge yourself to say maybe we don't need to do uh, fifteen courses? Maybe we do seven, right? And, and we cut our uh, amount of mise en place in half. Yeah, right. and we could still have an excellent. Like, I'm not going to go to a restaurant and say they would be number one if they had seven more courses. <laughs> it just was. It wasn't enough with the first seven. Like. Like we, we can't have it both ways, yeah. right? The, the critics I'm talking about. The critics can't have it both ways. They can't sit here on one end and say, uh, this is the best restaurant in the world. And in order to do so, it's because they have 15 courses, but shame them for the practices that they're doing for having 15 courses. You're incentivizing, you know, look at your incentives. If your incentive is number one restaurant does this, then guess what? Everyone else that wants to be number one is going to do that. Yeah. But if you really want to incentivize having a fair kitchen where you have an appropriate amount of staff that everyone gets paid and et cetera, et cetera, then award someone that's doing an excellent job sustainably and say, that's the business model and put a spotlight on it and say, look at what they're doing. They're able to produce exceptional food that is on a level that we haven't ever seen before. And it's only five to seven courses and you could get out of there, uh, you know, in, in less time and you could probably still charge the same, right? I don't know what Noma charges, but let's just say it's $500 a meal. You could probably still charge $500 a meal for seven courses, just make them a little bit bigger, whatever the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think the argument could be made that Renee's a genius. Like do not underestimate how smart this guy is. He could have figured that out. I didn't, I, I, he's not going to listen to this podcast and say like, <laughs> Oh, why did I ever think of that? Yeah. So, yeah. um, so I, th I think what we need to look at is like, how are we incentivizing, um, you know, the best restaurants in the world? And it doesn't have to be a 15 course or 20 course. It could be seven. It could be 10, whatever the case may be. And it, maybe that, that helps people figure out, okay, well now I could pay everyone or I could, you know, look at the ratio of, of interns or whatever it is that they did. So, I mean, a hundred percent, like even just you saying that, like, like I've just started doing pop-ups myself where I do seven or eight courses and, I seat only six people, but I also do the pouring of the cocktails and the, and the alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks as well as serving, clearing plates. Like I'm doing all roles just kind of in the one of the dishwasher, the maitre d', all that sort of shit. And, um, you know, so it's like clearly if at this point in my career I've somehow figured out a way to, to make it happen, obviously Renee's thought about this, you know, so... Uh, I'm not the only one to to think about a way to make it sustainable and not break your back. So, yeah. But the the it just even just like one last thing just to say about it was uh, just from a chef's perspective that people on the outside are saying, oh, you you know you can't have free free labor. This is unethical and all this sort of stuff, right? But there's not very many industries where people will work for free because they love it to get experience. This, like, how many people I've talked to where I've like, oh, yeah, you know, just recently I staged at a restaurant in Malta and they're like, what's, what's staging? And I'm like, oh, you mm -hmm. know, when you actually love something and you want to learn something, so you give your time to be better at what you do. And they're like, what's that? You know, like 90% mm -hmm. of the world uh, have these nine to five jobs. They can't wait to just tick on and fuck off and go, go to the local pub. And for anyone who's got that, artistic or create creative sense about them they'll commit more than there's there is no time frame to them it's 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 endless this passion and mm -hmm. fuck like 
if if I if I had the if I had the opportunity before, I would have I would have loved to go work there for free for three months. You know, like, and that's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. Like, if you can't afford it, then you don't do it. But you, it's like traveling. It's like, oh, I want to go travel Europe for three months, and you get there with no money, and you're like, traveling is so hard. This is so difficult. And you're like, maybe you should have just like considered that before you went over there. Like, you don't you don't go over there knowing you're going to work for three months for free, and then complain that it's so difficult or that, that it's, you know, and, and, and all this sort of shit. It's like, no, well, you save the money, you budget, you afford it, that experience because you know, you think it's going to benefit you in one way or another and you go over there and do it. Mm-hmm. And because that concept of staging isn't what people are familiar with because so many people live, a, a, you know, doing shit jobs just to pay bills and obviously everyone has different jobs for whatever reasons. I'm not backing that, but they don't, some people just don't even know the concept of doing something they love that makes them happy. So it's just crazy that they're getting flack for that because fuck, you're the best restaurant in the world. You're going to be getting more than 30 people wanting to come and work for you for free. So obviously they need a system to be able to like go through the applicants, find a way in which they go, well, we need to find out who are serious about it. So instead of it just being one day where we have always someone new every day, which is crazy. This is like trialing someone new every day that does actually take time out of someone like another full-time person's uh prep and and for them away from focusing from their own prep so they're gonna they're obviously gonna up it from like a week or a month or, or two months and then figure out a way in which they can go cool well this will you know filter out all the people that don't really want to or, or care less about it or, or can't or don't want to take it as seriously and go this is the criteria if you want to do this then come and start so that's reason. That's the reason why they do it. So, and fuck, like, it, it makes sense to me. And shit, I would work for free for them for three months if if I had had the time and the money to go over there. But unfortunately, I didn't. But I, in future, I still would. If I was ever over there, I'd, I'd happily go over there and, and and find a way to learn from them and engage with them. You know, it would have been sick. But uh, anyway, that's uh, it, it'd be very very interesting. But like you said, it, it clearly they saw this coming long before and and used that as the nice clickbait to get the ball rolling onto their next project so that's going to be very very interesting but with that with that said uh i did see that was norway won the bokusti ah fuck i don't i don't want to pronounce this wrong but is bokusti or denmark uh the bokusti or ah bokusti yeah so did did denmark denmark won the bokusti or denmark um yeah so denmark won first place um, God, I can't remember who came in second and third. I was obviously supporting Team USA. Um, <laughs> do you know much about the Pukus Dior? Absolutely nothing. Fill me in. So uh, think of it like the Olympics of cooking. It's probably the best way. Now, there is a culinary Olympics, you know, culinary Olympics that goes on annually. So it's, it's not that. But the Pukus Dior is the real Olympics, um, so to speak. It takes place uh, biannually in Lyon, um, France. It was started by Chef Paul Bocuse. And... Basically, what happens is a bunch of countries get together from around the world. They bring the best representative. There's usually a team of a competitor, um, a Komi. I don't remember what the Komi's age has to be, but I think they got to be under 21 years old. And then a coach. And there's more people on the team, but you know that's that's kind of who's there. And you go and and uh, you compete, and you have to do the theme. This year was God, it escapes me. I want to say it was um, it was, fa- it was fairy the tale. children is the theme. Yeah, it was like fairy tales or something. Was it? I thought it might have been Feed the Children. I got to go back and look. Okay. You know more than I would. So, And then you do a platter. And they had to do uh, this year's platter, I believe, was monkfish. And they, they go and they prepare. And it's intense. You know, you have a limited amount of time. And it's 
the best of the best chefs uh, competing for the title of, you know, the, the, the gold Bocuse. Um, Denmark won. The United States is really the team that I, I support, obviously being from the U.S., but I'm a part of an organization called Mentor BKB, or I was a part of, I wasn't a judge, I was the platter carrier for the USA qualifier in 2017. So I'm a part of this organization. Um, one of my friends, one of my close friends, Matthew Peters, uh, he's won uh, the Bocuse d'Or. He was the only American to ever win uh, the gold. And uh, yeah, you see the techniques that they're doing. And I'll tell you, it's it's high, high, high level. Like it's like we were talking about earlier, the 0.01%. Like it's that high level of technique. So when you watch it, it's like you're going to see some things that it's like, holy shit, that's pretty cool. Because you have a certain amount of time and you got to execute stuff at the highest level. And so people are building tools. You know, these competitors have to think of every little thing and, you know, they're training, um, you know, for years basically to, to do this. And they're, you know, I could think there's a documentary called the competitor and Rich Rosendale, uh, who's an American was the, um, you know, the, the featured chef in the, in the documentary. And he talks about, you know, he's working out in the morning. He has music blasting while he's cooking because it mimics, you know, the, the people in the audience that are yelling and it's like a soccer stadium. So, um, it's a competition unlike any other. And, uh, you know, congratulations to Denmark that they won. Um, it's, it's a pretty cool thing to watch. Um, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, you can watch it on YouTube. It's, you're going to see technique that's like, holy shit, that's a good idea. Uh, I'm curious, how did uh, Australia go in this? Uh, I don't know. I don't, so there was only 24, there's 24 countries that competed. And so there's 24 uh, judges, right? So every country gets a judge. Right. That makes sense. Um, and there's 24 countries that competed. I don't remember if Australia was on there. Um, I hate to say it. I'm usually only paying attention to the United States, France, and whoever wins. Like that, that's, I'm not paying attention to the rest. But uh, so I, I don't. I apologize, Australia. I don't know how they did, <laughs> or if they did. I don't know. Or even if they showed up. Who knows? They're too, they're too busy. Over here. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Ah, uh, fuck. Who it. knows? But people should watch it. It's it, it's fun. It's not like. Um, I mean, it's it's as intense as any culinary competition is going to go at the highest level. Who's uh, Ramses has won three times, right? So he's the only chef I want to say that's won gold, silver, and bronze. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And, um, you know, from a United States standpoint, so I'll talk a little bit about the organization Mentor BKB. It was started by Thomas Keller, Daniel Balut, and Jerome Bocuse, the son of Paul Bocuse. So that's the BKB, uh, Bocuse, Keller, and Balut. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's the BKB part of Mentor BKB. And, and, you know, the, 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 the story goes is, you know, um, they wanted to create this team for the United States that could rival some of the great teams of Europe. So the Denmarks and the, and the, uh, the Norways and the Frances of the world. And uh, so from a United States standpoint, the first chef to get on the podium. So the United States hadn't even been on the podium since the inception of the Bocuse d'Or, I want to say in the 80s. And so Philip Tessier uh, was the first chef ever to get on the podium. He got silver. And then the very next year, the United States won gold. So, wow. Um, with, with Matthew Peters. So there, you could, there was a lot of, I mean, that wasn't, uh, I mean, Matthew Peters was the competitor. Philip Tessier, they deserved the, uh, you know, they, they deserved the recognition. Philip Tessier coached Matthew Peters when he won. Um, but there's a lot of people involved from Thomas Keller to, uh, to Crucial Detail and Grant Ackett's and Rich Rosendale. I mean, they're, the United States has some heavy hitters 
uh, <laughs> making sure that uh, that they do well in, in the competition. Um, one of my friends, Robert Salatiki, was the coach this year um, for the competition. So anyway, I was I was disappointed to see the United States not place because their food. Honestly, I wasn't a judge, but looking at their food, I'm like, how did they not win? Like it's it was pretty stunning. You should you should check it out. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I kind of glossed over the the details of it when you mentioned it, and I was like, oh fuck, I have heard very like I know of it, but I rarely hear about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe just because Australia never fucking goes in, so I don't really see or hear about many chefs in Australia winning it. You know, often. So yeah, I, was like, I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like such a shit chef not knowing about such a international culinary competition that is so widely talked about over there and it's just like australia is its own little thing like i don't know we have our own rules and competitions and shit you know so it's like we know of the big ones but every now and then some seem to escape us this this is the one that if uh, if people are watching they want to see high level technique this is this is the one to watch yeah no sick all right well with that said uh, i think that'll close close up this one we're fucking we Buddy went went through it, didn't we? I don't know. Every every two months is always something. Fucking yeah, we did. Com- it was always two. Every two months is always something coming up just to fucking talk shit about, it, which is great. So I'm loving it. But uh, yeah, sick. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And Jesus Christ, I hope the uh, blackouts get better in, in future. Yeah. Thank you. Good to see you. And uh, hope we'll see you next month. I guess. I'll see you soon, man. Thanks so much. All right. T- take care. The Roots Podcast is proudly supported by Sydney Direct Fresh Produce, the fruit and veg supplier led by Luke Kohler, who's provided Sydney with some of the best and local produce since he was 16 years old and still smashing it today. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you'd like to listen to more episodes or check out some cool behind-the-scenes photography, then head to the new website over at rootshospitality.com.au or follow Roots Hospitality on Instagram for the latest updates. Cheers!